Hello and welcome to another episode of Twimble Talk, the podcast where I interview interesting people doing interesting things in machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. In this, the final episode of our AI and Sports series, I'm joined by Stephanie Kowalczyk, Research Fellow at Victoria University and Senior Sports Scientist at Tennis Australia. Stephanie and I had a great conversation about a few of the many interesting projects underway at Tennis Australia. We start out taking a look at their use of data to develop a player rating system based on ability and probability as opposed to the current official one, which is based on points scored and match results. We then get into some of the interesting products her Game Insight group is developing, including a win forecasting algorithm and a statistic that measures a given player's workload during a match. Stephanie details her paper, Is There a Pythagorean Theorem for Winning in Tennis?, which explores the development and application of a Pythagorean theorem for win expectation in tennis. We also take a look at her project to develop a system for classifying ending shots and an emotion tracking system that helps show the link between emotion and performance in tennis. All right, on to the show. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Stephanie Kowalczyk. Stephanie is a research fellow at Victoria University and senior sports scientist at Tennis Australia. Stephanie, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why don't we get started by talking a little bit about your background? You, you've got a background in statistics, but you're applying that to the field of tennis now. How did that come about? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting one. I guess to go way back, I was always really interested in, in science. And um, so I, I knew definitely that I wanted a career in science, but I actually started out um, kind of more interested in neuroscience. When I was an undergrad, I was looking into biology and really thought the brain and how it worked was was fascinating. So um, I kind of thought I was going to do that. I, I was at Caltech and then I spent a year after graduating um, just doing pure research. And um, I was collecting data and starting to analyze it. And it was at that point that I realized um, how important stats were to science and reaching conclusions. And um, and I really just wanted to do that all of the time. So then um, I looked to see, you know, what programs I might um, go into. And um, I found a great one at UCLA. So I, I went over there and, um, and finished my master's and PhD uh, there. And um, I was actually in biostat, so it was very applied, a lot of focus on on applications of statistics to health and things like clinical trial design and studying uh, diseases. And um, after that, I went to the National Cancer Institute, actually um, did a fellowship there, and it was all focused on risk prediction. But that was kind of my first first place where I got a, a taste of real model building and with an important practical um, outcome where our, our whole goal was to try to help um, doctors and patients better assess their risk for different types of cancer and um, learned a lot just about the different approaches, um, particularly more from kind of the epidemiological point of view. 
Um, so, so far you're probably wondering like, where's the sports angle and all of this? <laughs> I was on a, a very kind of, you know, health statistician track and on the side, like, you know, the one, it's a like classic story in sports statistics where it's like, you know, the, the hobbyist goes home and spends all of the, all of their evenings just scraping data and, <laughs> um, calculating percentages and, um, that's, that's literally what happened. I mean, more, more after grad school, once I kind of had enough of a foundation and I was always watching tennis. I just loved, loved the sport my whole life. And, um, and I was starting to watch it from that, that perspective. Okay. And, you know, at that point, like the whole money ball, um, era in sport was like well underway, but it never had really reached tennis and I was just confused why, you know, why weren't we seeing that same kind of advance? And I started looking on the web to see what kind of data was available in the sport. And there was actually quite a lot, um, at least when you're thinking of the kinds of data you might want for like building a rating system for, for players, for example, you could do that um, for all of the, you know, the open era history in tennis, just from publicly available data. So, um, so I started to... Um, take on like kind of small projects, but they, it grew over time. And then I was starting to present at sports conferences. And eventually that was how I learned about the role at Tennis Australia, um, meeting another sports, um, sports scientist that was working, working there. And um, that was the first time that I realized that somebody could work full time on sports doing <laughs> statistics. That's I figured great. you had to be doing it in baseball or basketball. Um, I, I, yeah, I just wasn't even really pursuing that as a career. I just thought it would always be this passion, the side passion. Yeah. So luckily I, it turned out that I just didn't realize the opportunities and kind of stumbled on one. And, um, I've been in, in that role for two and a half years now. And, um, yeah, it's really a dream situation. That's fantastic. Did you play competitively uh, growing up or in college or something like that? Uh, in high school. I mean, that, that was about the extent of, of my ability. Um, but it was one of those things where like first sport that I really learned with my dad and, you know, so it kind of had a special place and, and there's something appealing just about the individual nature of it. You know, you're, you're out there and you're totally alone. I mean, there's nobody that's going to help you with any of the decision making. And, and so I think that really lends itself to kind of, you know, an in interesting drama and stories that, that make, um, you know, the whole journey of individual players that much more interesting. You mentioned using open data to come up with a rating system. Now, as I understand it, tennis has a a well-established formal rating system. What what would be the relationship between that type of uh, the formal system and, and one that you'd come up with, with uh, openly available data? Yeah. So tennis does have um, official rankings and um, those are based on a point-based method where players basically rack up points based on uh, their performance at individual tournaments. And the bigger the tournament, the more points they get and the deeper that they go in that event, the more points that they get. But it's not actually tied in any statistical way to the expectations about what they should be doing and how difficult their opponent is. Um, so one, one thing that 
statisticians working in tennis have been interested in is whether um, if you have an approach that is based sort of on the probabilities around um, individual match results, if that would give you a better assessment of a player's overall ability, because it's directly tied to what they're expected to do and how they're actually performing. Um, so as an example, um, an alternative to the official rankings would be um, an ELO-based system, and that would be an example of one that's a probability-based um, way of measuring player ability. It can also be applied to teams and, in fact, is used by a number of, of professional teams. Um, it was actually developed originally um, for chess, for rating chess players, but that's a system that's really, it's really well established and, um, and my group, um, we have shown that it does outperform the official rankings just in terms of um, the assessment of player performance. So if you use it to evaluate how a player is likely to perform in the future, so use it as a basis for forecasting their future results, it does a better job than, than um, models based off of official rankings. So yeah, so that's one reason to, to prefer it. And you can also do fun stuff like look at surface-specific versions. You can try to focus more on a player's serve versus return, which is kind of a offensive-defensive type of breakdown. Um, so it's something that's, there's, I think, more, more research questions around even improving the current systems that are used. Um, but all of those possible improvements can be done with, with open data. Uh, so, Stephanie, you work as a data scientist as part of the Game Insight group at Tennis Australia. What exactly does that group do and what's your day-to-day -day role uh, as a data scientist there? Yeah, um, GIG, as we call it, is um, sort of an academic industry partnership. So that's um, my two hats, uh, doing research at Victoria University and then um, being part of this research uh, group with Tennis Australia. So Tennis Australia and Victoria came together. They realized that there was this real opportunity um, in tennis to um, advance what's being done with, with data that's available. And so um, the Game Insight Group is really an initiative to try to take advantage of that, that opportunity. So it's, it's a research and development group that's, um, we um, include a number of, of data scientists and we spend all of our time just focusing on questions of interest in how can we understand, you know, why some athletes in tennis do better than others. I mean, ultimately, we're trying to kind of crack <laughs> that question. Um, and so we have a number of areas of research and then we get the chance to actually create products out of those as well. So there's kind of a large translational component to what we do, where we're trying to not only address questions that are of interest to us, sort of as you know, academics and researchers, but that we think the results of pursuing that research could directly impact the sport and, um, and have benefit back to how athletes are training, um, how coaches are making decisions about their development. Um, so that's one of the really exciting things about, about the role is that translational piece. And, um, yeah, so we, um, are spending a lot of our time doing what you might typically think of with a researcher at 
at a university, but then we also get the chance to um, participate with events, try to bring stats to life in actual matches um, for fans, and then work with players and coaches to help them um, as they're you know trying to per- pursue their performance objectives. What's an example of one of the products that you've been able to create uh, in the role? So we have a number of stats actually that we debuted this year at the Australian Open. That's kind of our marquee event, as you might imagine, being at Melbourne Park. And so that included a a win uh, forecasting approach, which allowed us to um, let fans know um, what each player's chances were of winning the match at any point in time and to contrast that with where they were at the start. So it kind of gives you an interesting idea about um, the momentum over the course of a match. We also had a work stat that we introduced, which I was really excited about because tennis is a very physical game. There's so much interest in how uh, players, how much effort they're making during matches and how that's um, affecting their performance. But we don't actually have a lot of stats um, around the physicality um, of actual match play. So we have worked on a work stat that basically gives you a comprehensive look at how much um, physical effort players are making, primarily in their lower body. So by running around, changes of direction, accelerations, decelerations, we take all of that into account to come up with this overall work measure. And so that's another thing that's fun to look at um, how different the two players in any particular matchup are as as a match progresses. So every year, yeah, we are looking for new metrics that will give um, kind of a new perspective to uh, to the sport. And those were some examples that we introduced this year. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that work set? Uh, where does the data, for example, come from? So that's one that's based off of tracking data, which has kind of been a new thing. It's If you look as, across sports more broadly, tracking data is kind of the, um, the holy grail um, for sports statistician because it represents some of the highest quality information that's out there about performance. Um, in tennis, it became um, more available with the introduction of the player challenge system, which is a multi-camera system that sits on courts and tracks the ball throughout a match, and it allows players to be able to review line calls if they think there's been an error made. They get to use um, a challenge, and then there's sort of a video graphic representation of where that particular shot landed with respect to the lines. For that to happen, that yeah, for that to happen, there's all this data being generated about the um, position of the ball in space at any point in time, and it also has information about the player locations as well. So uh, GIG, we have um, access to uh, that tracking data for the Australian Open series events. Um, So for that that part of the calendar, we get a a comprehensive look at the physical characteristics of shots and player movement. Um, And so that would represent all hard court matches. Um, And we have that going back to like 2012 so that's been a big area of development for us is like what what insights can we get out of those data that we can use um, in our 
player services or in um, enhancing the experience at events. And thinking about that that data source, multiple cameras, different angles, it strikes me that there are a ton of interesting machine learning and AI types of challenges in there to go from that to you know some kind of representation of a player position or even player foot positions that will allow you to get to things like acceleration and distance covered and all these things. Um, is that processing of the the video to get to some of the positional information? Are you involved in that or is that done upstream to you and, and you get more refined information? We're not actually collecting those data or producing those data ourselves. That's done by the company that's responsible for um, providing that challenge, the player challenge system, which is Hawkeye, who's now part of uh, Sony. And they actually are that data provider for um, other sports as well. Like they provide a, a video review system for cricket, for example. Um, so they're the they're the data provider. And um, what we end up getting from those are um, summaries of the, um, it's effectively arcs of the movement of the ball. So a typical shot will have two, two arcs. And those are described with, uh, polynomials, polynomial functions in 3D space. So you get a, a summary function, um, but it's at a very uh, fine level of detail. And from that, you can derive a number of, of interesting things like the ball speed at any point in time, um, its height, its you know angular characteristics. Um, so that's the data that were provided. So it's not exactly raw in the sense that you're not looking at like coordinates in space. It's in a summary form, but it's still quite um, quite granular. Okay. You mentioned earlier player acceleration, and I'm trying to envision how you might derive that from ball positions. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So for the players, we actually have a 2D coordinate of um, the position of their stance. So it's effectively like the midpoint of their stance at any point in time. Okay. Um, and that is tracked at like 25 hertz. So you get 25 samples per second of, um, of their um, XY position. Okay. And so it's from that that we would derive anything around the player movement. Got it. Got it. Super interesting. I, I did have a question from, your, uh, from looking at some of your publications on your website. You, one of your uh, recent articles is, is there a Pythagorean theorem for winning in tennis? And uh, in looking into that a little bit, like I didn't realize that Pythagorean theorems in sports was a thing, but it sounds like it's a whole <laughs> it's a whole thing. Can you talk a little bit about the background and uh, implications of all that? Yeah, it's actually a fun one, kind of historically in in sports stats because it was one of the um, one of the things that Bill James, who's kind of now become like this you know godfather of sports statistics. One of the the things that um, one of his major co- contributions to baseball statistics was the development of uh, this Pythagorean theorem, or sometimes you'll see it called the Pythagorean expectation. So, sports statisticians spend a lot of their time thinking about how can they forecast outcomes in the sport because. If you can do that, it usually means it gives you a better understanding of why some succeed and others don't. And that's ultimately, you know, a central question to a, a lot of uh, what we do. 
Um, so the Pythagorean theorem is one approach to looking at. I'm getting uh, the scratchy thing again. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I, I'm, just, I'm sorry. I was trying to manage my dog down there and I think the mic moved around. Uh, should I start uh, back? Sure. Sure. Um, so the Pythagorean theorem, it's, it's an interesting one historically because it was one of the major contributions of, of Bill James, who's become the sort of godfather of sports statistics. And what he looked at was a question around, you know, how could you try to determine if a, a team, let's say, is midway in their, their season, what their likely um, overall win percentage is going to be at the end of the season. And so looking at that problem, he, he developed this Pythagorean expectation and what I was interested in is whether a similar idea um, and a similar relationship existed in tennis. So the, the main thought behind it is that, um, you know, how do you get a win? And in most sports, it usually means earning more points in some sense than your opponent. Um, so in baseball, it's runs. It's all about, you know, being ahead of your opponent in runs. The Pythagorean expectation shows that actually, if you look at the runs earned by a team over the course of a season against the runs that their opponents have earned against them, and you take the square of those, that that ratio between the team's runs earned squared against the sum of um, that quantity and their op opponent's uh, runs earned is actually quite accurate of setting expectations for what a team's overall win record is going to look like uh, in the long term. So that's where this, the Pythagorean label comes from, because if you look at these squared terms, it looks a little bit like the relationship between the sides of a triangle. So, yeah, so James was working at that like in the 80s, which, you know, that's like ancient times from sports stats perspective. Um, and since then, a lot of other statisticians have looked to see if, if similar relationships exist in their sport, because, you know, we're, most of us are all in that situation of like, you're just trying to earn more points. So maybe there's kind of a similar, similar thing that you can find. And there have been applications of it in basketball, hockey, and, um, and it holds up, although the exponent, the sort of optimal exponent, um, for setting those expectations varies from one sport to the next. And, and it's kind of interesting because if you look at that exponent, depending on what value it takes, it kind of tells you how important one additional point, whatever that point represents for that particular sport, it tells you how important that is um, in that particular sport. So if you're in a very high scoring type of sport like basketball, um, one additional point um, will generally mean less than an additional run in baseball, for example. So back to tennis. In tennis, it's kind of interesting because it's a hierarchical type of game, right? There's You have points within games and games within sets, and you don't necessarily have to win every point to win the match. In fact, there's a special name for matches where the winner actually won a lower percentage of points are called kind of like the lot lottery matches. Cause it's just, um, it seems a little bit <laughs> like they <laughs> kind there of was some luck involved. 
yeah, a bit of, um, a bit of chance or, or luck on that. It's rare. It happens maybe 5% of the time, but still it, it points out the fact that the nature of points in tennis are a different thing than in a lot of other sports where you're basically, there's an, uh, an incentive to win every single point. Um, so it, it kind of makes you think, well, maybe this would be one of the sports where this just, this expectation, this theorem breaks down. Um, but it turns out that if you focus on breakpoints, now these are situations where a receiver um, has an opportunity to win um, a game. And that's a special situation in tennis because there is um, a strong serve advantage. Just the nature of the serve usually gives the, the player that's serving an edge for winning those points. And so more often than not, players win their service games when they're serving um, and anytime that doesn't happen, it's a real opportunity for the other player to take a, an advantage, a position of advantage. And in fact, most matches are won based off of uh, breaks of serve. Um, the only instance where that isn't the case is when um, a set has to go to a tie break. Um, but by and large, matches are decided on the basis of the small subset of these break point opportunities. And if you focus on that, and that basically becomes your, let's say, breakpoint, uh, breakpoints one becomes your points under this Pythagorean model, that that you can find a strong relationship between that and a player's overall uh, match win expectations over the uh, over a period of time. And not only that, but it turns out the exponent is very similar to the one found in baseball, um, which kind of makes sense because if you look at the number of break points that are typically involved in a particular match. It's kind of a similar scale or range as runs in baseball. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And the method for demonstrating this is this, um, you know, is it like uh, coming up with a theory and then back testing it to a bunch of data or how did you arrive at, at the, the notion of using the break point? Well, it's interesting. You can actually represent that Pythagorean relationship, even with a, a general form with, let's say, um, the exponent being an unknown parameter. You can express that and as a linear model. So it actually has um, a form. You can then investigate the, the simplest form where you're just looking at, let's say, one uh, run type or point type. And, and then the goal is just trying to find what is the best um, exponent that can all be done within a linear regression framework. So very kind of simple just to do um, a, a basic um, application of, of the model. Um, the, the thing that's more of a question is what time periods are you looking at and like, what is the period over which you're forecasting? And that's really, you want to maybe consider how it might be used. So in tennis, um, you might expect that maybe after a few months into a season, there'd be an interest in projecting where that player is likely to be at the end of the season um, and so on. Obviously, if you're a month out from, you know, your, your, your last few events of the season, it, doing that kind of projection might be less relevant. So, so we looked at sort of six months, projecting six months out, you know, 12 months out um, and set up the training data for, for that purpose. Um, but that's, you know, that's all uh, almost like tuning parameters in terms of how you're going to, going around to evaluate the approach. Um, 
but that that basic form um, fits within you know our, our kind of basic regression framework. So, what are some other ways that you've applied machine learning to this type of work? Well, a few interesting things that we're we're working on now. One was actually started as um, a hackathon during this year's Australian Open, which was nice because it was sort of in parallel. We had um, you know our one of the majors. Um, underway the first major of the year. And then we had this big data science competition. So um, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So that um, at the end, we ended up having um, thousands of data scientists participated. And the goal of the the project was to use the tracking data we were talking about to um, classify the ending shot so in tennis, there's a lot of interest about how the how a point ends in terms of um, was it a winner, uh, unforced error, or forced error. So those are kind of the three mutually exclusive categories that any shot um, that ends a point can fall into. And you'd be amazed, but today that labeling, it's done at professional events, but it's still done by a human that's sitting on court and actually entering those labels with every point. And um, as you can imagine, I mean, that's it's labor intensive and probably not um, the best job. Although if you're a tennis fan, I guess you wouldn't mind (laughs) getting to sit down there. Um, But one issue is actually consistency with those labels. So if you look at some of the unforced error winner stats from event to event, they can look quite different. And there was actually a noticed at a recent Davis Cup event. Um, sort of the form tennis forms went a little bit crazy because there were clearly some problems in how um, those stats were being tallied. So you'd like to be able to, you know, have a more efficient approach and also um, one that's more reliable from event to event. So we were thinking, well, we've got this tracking data here and it tells you about the nature of shots in such detail. Like, maybe you could build a classifier to automate that labeling process. And that was really the the goal of the hackathon was almost kind of a proof of concept of like, if you just had um, a lot of data science talent, <laughs> look at that problem over a few weeks period, you know, how far could, could they take it? And um, the, the prize winning uh, model actually was able to get 95% accuracy in the, the, um, out of sample uh, testing, um, so that was that was much more than than we hoped, um, and quite quite promising, I think, for taking that even further with with more data that we collect over time and um, building something that we might actually start using in events. Um, and I think not only for that particular use is it something that we're interested in, but I think it's a, a type of model that we could also use to maybe develop other metrics. Because if you think about it, being able to say how likely is a shot a winner versus an error, you can almost treat that as a measure of the shot's difficulty or quality. And you could apply that to any shot happening um, in a match. And um, and so that could be a really interesting sort of extension or, or additional product that could come out of that kind of modeling work. So that that was one that um, was kind of a recent development for the group. Now that's that's really interesting. Uh, can I interrupt you and ask how does that ninety five percent compare to what the uh, humans that are sitting sitting on the line recording that data tend to run? Well, that's an interesting question because there's no gold standard, 
And that's one of the things that is an issue around, you know, the consistency because you only have one person at any particular time that's actually doing this in practice. Um, so I don't think we really know um, if there is an error in some sense in how it's being classified. It's difficult to say because it's there's some subjectivity, particularly around the distinction between a forced and an unforced error. And in fact, for that reason, you know, some some tennis statisticians just don't really like the system at all because there is this element of subjectivity because it's like, how far do you take it? You know, um, is it a, a shot that would be unreturnable for the average player or do you try to make it specific to that player? So that means what is an unforced error for the hundredth ranked player in the world isn't the same as for Roger Federer, for example. Right. Um, yeah, so there's there's this kind of gray area in how these things are defined. So um, yeah, so we don't really know. I think the advantage would be that with having a system like this, you at least would know that the machine is always going to follow the same rules, and that's something that you can't be guaranteed of with with using human classification, particularly when it's only based on one, one person's opinion at any individual match. Do you happen to recall any of the details around the winning model and, uh, you know, it's model type and, uh, general structure? Yes. Yeah, so the, the winning model, um, the first thing, and, and this was true, actually what we did was we took the top five based on their, um, out of sample testing performance. And we asked them all to provide some documentation about their approach. And there were some characteristics that were true across all of the, all of the top five. And that included, um, combining the men's and women's data, um, in one model. And, um, they all did extensive feature engineering. And so I'm sure the practitioners <laughs> out there, know like how important that can be to improving performance. And, and this whole experience really gave me an appreciation for that. Um, and I would say probably that that was the thing that separated the ultimate top prize winner from the others was the extent of the feature engineering, some of which include basically just trying all kind of possibilities of combinations among, um, among the features that were provided. But but also giving some thought to things that would potentially be be relevant. So like there were some distances that were calculated from, you know, player to player and, and things like this. So it was kind of a combination both of sort of, um, I guess, substantively driven uh, feature development and then others that were just more kind of just expanding the feature space. And other than that, I think a lot of the the top models considered considered boosting types of approaches. And those seem to work um, particularly well just on the basis of how much they were represented among that, that group of models. And a lot of ensembles in that group of models or no? There, I think one of the five um, did, did a more formal ensemble in the sense that they used multiple ML classifiers and then effectively took a sort of an average among them. Mm -hmm. Um so there, there was one, but that wasn't actually the top winning. The top winning was um, just a pure extreme um, boosting approach. And do you recall if any, were there any deep learning based uh, submissions that tried to forego the feature engineering and just toss a ton of data to a neural network? 
There were definitely neural networks. I don't, I don't think anything would meet like a definition of sort of a deep architecture, mm-hmm. um, which may be reasonable in this setting because we, what we provided were sort of summary features about the last two shots of any individual point. Um, it wasn't like we just gave them, you know, coordinates in space. Um, so the data was already fairly handcrafted, you could say. Um, um, so it wasn't a situation like deep learning has generally been been most successful when applied to image data. Um, and that data, you know, is much more complex than what we were providing based off this, these kind of summary measures from the tracking data. Uh, and then on the also on the machine learning front, you've been doing some work on emotion tracking. Yes. So this is this is more of like our image um, application. So a lot of the things that we've been discussing have been um, focusing on the these tracking data. But at the same time that that's been a very great innovation in the sport, we also recognize that we have all of this match video just sitting around and we're not really doing anything with it from like a statistical point of view or from a data capture point of view. So we've been thinking about, well, what are things that we're not able to get from the tracking data that we would want to have to try to understand the sport better? And one of those things is player um, emotion and just mentality in general. So in tennis, you know, there's a lot of conventional wisdom about the importance of a player's um, temperament and, and mentality during matches and how they perform. But we don't really have any quantifiable data around those concepts. Um, so it's in some way, it's kind of the most elusive area in tennis performance is really understanding the link between performance and, and player emotion. Um, so we've been working on an approach to try to capture um, information about the emotions expressed during matches using just a single camera video and we actually um, have a paper describing our initial approach that appeared at the MIT Sloan conference this year. And uh, essentially we have like seven different emotion types that we um, think are relevant, are particularly relevant to a sports context. Um, and this is one of the reasons why the problem's a bit challenging. There's been a lot of work with facial recognition and expression capture that's that's been um, going on and you can even see you know, applications of it in, in your social media devices. But in, in sport, you kind of want to tailor the emotions that you look at because there are some things that are of more interest in a sports context, like how concentrated a player seems to be. Do they seem frustrated or nervous? These kinds of things. Um, so a lot of our work is actually just constructing this kind of labeled data set. So we've been treating it like a, a supervised a learning problem. And so a large part of, of the time that we spend is to construct that, that database. But we have a, an initial version, and then we've started to actually apply it and understand, understand what it might suggest about how players react to points and and how their reactions might affect their future performance and um you know the next kind of frontier for that would be to actually try to start doing it in real time but it that involves a whole nother slew of problems 
So you have to be able to, in real time, um, identify player faces from other faces that you might see captured in the video on broadcast to be able to label the right player to that face and then actually do any of the prediction on a real-time sort of time scale. So those are some of the challenges that we're looking at right now. Oh, sounds like really interesting work. It sounds like you're in the early stages and and starting to build out this data set. Have you gotten to the point where you've started building models on top of it and trying to relate that to player performance, or are you still way before that point? Well, we have um, an initial set of approaches. So we looked at a range of different, um, you know, fairly standard types of machine learning models. So we had tree-based approaches, um, support factor machines, neural nets. And from that, we were able to um, find what in our initial training set was um, sort of the best performing approach for each emotion type of interest. And then we applied that to um, a group of players that we kind of know what their baseline should be just based on sort of popular opinion. And that was the big four. So the big four are uh, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray, Rafa Nadal, four of the most successful male tennis players in recent times. In fact, like from 2006 to the present, they've won 45 of 49 Grand Slams. Those are the biggest tennis events in the year. So, so they're, they're players that are quite well known in the sport. And so they kind of each have um, a personality profile and um, we applied the emotion capture to establish sort of baselines for each of them. And it was almost a way of checking the face validity of what we were doing. Cause it's like, even if our model is able to get a good level of accuracy against the training sets labels for each of these emotions, how do we know that they actually represent anything meaningful? So that was why we wanted to kind of look at a group of players where we kind of have some idea of how they differ in terms of their, their typical temperament. Um, and that actually held up quite well because, for example, it showed that the predominant emotion for Nadal was anxiety. And that was one that, you know, was was an expectation for him compared to the other the other three players, um, whereas Roger Federer was the least expressive of the group. He was, if anything, he was more focused at any particular point in time than any of the other emotions. So that that was a promising uh, result. And then we started to look at, for that group, what the relationship was with uh, performance. And we did find that there were, um, there were strong associations with the number of the um, um, emotions that were captured and how that player was performing in, in the matches that were, we evaluated, which does suggest that there is some link there. But the interesting thing is that it was quite variable, like the nature of those associations uh, from one player to the next. So what that it's still early days <laughs> in coming any very strong conclusions, but I think right now we can say that um, there, if there is a link, it's probably one that's player specific, the nature of how uh, emotions um, influence a player's performance. Yeah. I would think that if the, you know, you've got four very winning players that all have different baseline temperaments then the the uh it would be the difference between their baseline and what they're observed at in any particular point of time that would be kind of of interest um as opposed to you know the 
frustrated player never wins or something like that. If there's a really good frustrated player. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that we're interested in, in um, evaluating more broadly as we collect more and more of this emotion data um, is, is it, you know, just the absolute intensity of any particular emotion or is it, you know, how, um, how much it represents a change um, from what's normal for a particular player that, that actually matters. Um, and if you just look at, you know, the top of the game, um, and it's been true historically, like you go back to Borg McEnroe and you couldn't find like two more opposite personalities, but in terms of their success, you know, they were quite, quite comparable. And, and that's, that's true as well today. You can have players that express a lot of anger and intensity, like an Andy Murray, you know, against, um, a, a sort of stoic champion like Federer. And so that in itself tells you that it's probably not that there's any like universal mentality that's like the one formula for being, um, you know, one of the all time best players in the sport, but it may have more to do with these kind of deviations from whatever a player's kind of norm is. Right, right. Wow. Super, super interesting work. Thank you so much for taking the time out to share it with us. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Sam. Uh, this is fun. Is there anything else that you'd like to note for the audience or uh, anything that you'd like to point them to? Um, I guess just to say, I mean, for the maybe aspiring sports statisticians, I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity these days. I know our own group's been been growing even over the past six months. And, and I think there's um, more and more appreciation for how data science expertise can help to advance sport in all areas. I didn't even mention, but I mean, there's more, more work being done on the business side, for example, and understanding, you know, consumer behavior at sport and ticketing and things like that. So, so there's definitely more and more opportunity um, for uh, statisticians, data scientists that are interested in careers in sport. And so I would definitely encourage you all to pursue it if that's a passion of yours. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Stephanie. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Stephanie or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimmelaicom slash talk slash 159. To follow along with the AI in Sports series, visit twimmelaicom slash AI in Sports. If you're a fan of the podcast, we'd like to encourage you to head to iTunes or wherever you catch your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. They are super, super helpful as we push to grow this show and community. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.